Hey everyone, this is Sina with another episode of Into the Bytecode. My guest in this conversation is Liam Horn, the former CEO and advisor to Optimism Labs. Liam's a good friend and someone I've known for many years. And in this conversation, we start at the beginning. We talk about how he met Vitalik at the University of Waterloo when they were classmates and got convinced to start working on the problem of Ethereum scaling. We talk about how he learned the importance of defining a new language and terminology for describing what he's working on, how he shifted to paying more attention to the human layer of how progress is made. We trace the evolution of some of the intellectual ideas behind scaling. We also talk about what it's like to build a production system of this scale and what some of his principles are for building an organization that can do that. So all said, Liam's a really good human being and I hope you enjoy this conversation. Into the Bytecode is sponsored by Privy. One of the biggest problems we're grappling with as builders working on crypto-enabled applications is how to make the right trade-offs between user experience on the one hand and security and privacy on the other hand. How do we promote self-custody and ownership while letting the application shine rather than the crypto behind it? So Privy plays an important role here. They provide simple onboarding so anyone can connect to your app easily by allowing them to sign in with an existing wallet or by making it easy for you to provision a new self-custodial wallet for them, linking to social logins like Google, Twitter, or Discord. I personally have faith in Privy because of the team. Henry Stern, who's one of the co-founders, was previously on an episode of this podcast, so you can listen to that conversation for more of a deep dive. And he and his partner, Asta Lee, have been thinking about data privacy and security for a long, long time. And you can see this in the level of thought they're putting into the product. So if you're working on a new product and thinking about how to reach a wider group of users without compromising on either user experience or privacy and security, then I encourage you to check out Privy at privy.io. So I, I was thinking about where to start. And one of the, I personally know bits of this story, but one of the things I admire about you and a number of other people in this space is just the length of time and the steadfastness with which you've been working on scaling, on scaling Ethereum. And so I thought a nice place to start would be at the beginning of that journey mm -hmm. of how did you fall into this trap of <laughs> working on scaling Ethereum? Yeah, how did I end up here? Um, yeah, so I guess uh, for me, the, the story um, for me begins pretty early on. Um, back in the University of Waterloo, I was actually in the same class, um, as you know, with Vitalik. Uh, in, in 2012, we were both in these kind of mathematics and computer science classes together uh, in, in University of Waterloo in Canada. And um, at that point in time, I didn't know Vitalik super well as like a friend, but I was like aware of him. We chatted a bunch. We had once we gave like this gift to a professor that taught us some functional programming and actual virtual machine design, which is kind of cool to see how that transitioned. Um, wow. But um, I kind of knew of him and was following along. And he dropped out of school in 2013, I think. And he got the Teal Fellowship. Ironically, he actually was going to go to work at Ripple in the United States. Uh, and his visa expired. Uh, or rather, his visa didn't expire. His visa was uh, yeah, it was denied. So he ended up not being able to take the job at Ripple. So instead, he went to Europe 
And then it's in, in, in the trip there where he met a bunch of Bitcoin people. He kind of came to the idea of Ethereum. But like, anyway, I was following along with that journey and I had a kind of a similar parallel journey where I also dropped out, also got the Teal Fellowship and was working on um, a location analytics startup, which is basically figuring out where to put physical retail stores like Tim Hortons and Dunkin' Donuts and stuff like that. And shout out to Canada. Yeah, shout out Canada. And in that journey, um, uh, I was, you know, just following along with Ethereum. We actually, in our startup, we had like a dashboard showing our like key stats, um, sales pipelines, all that kind of stuff. And it would rotate from slide to slide. And one of the, and the third slide was ethstats.net, uh, just showing like the Ethereum stats, uh, right when the network launched, um, early on. And so I was just kind of aware of Ethereum. I thought it was really cool. I was a fan of the technology. The time that it came out was around the time when, Facebook was being criticized for, you know, owning all of your data and reselling it. And so the kind of idea that originally made sense to me when I first read the white paper and saw some of the marketing videos around Ethereum was, wow, this is a way for people to own their data. Um, and kind of, it kind of changed the incentive model for, um, social networks like Facebook and other sorts of like online marketplaces where these companies could kind of control the, the, the user's data and their experience. So that kind of always was interesting to me. But I never really dove in because I was focused on traditional, you know, tr- when you say traditional, but like the regular Silicon Valley startup grind. Um, uh, going forward into around 2017, 2016, 2017 timeline, I had um, moved on from Pinpoint um, and I'd started, which was the startup. And then I started working on a startup studio called Atomic alongside a handful of other people. And I was the director of engineering there, which was a role where I was kind of, thinking of what new businesses we might be able to as a studio that's also a fund kind of incubate and thinking through what the early technical designs would be of these um, projects. Uh, And there was everything from like NLP, natural language processing companies, to Mm. um, healthcare startups, to real estate startups, to mobile apps. And it was just a very diverse set of uh, ideas that we were incubating. And did that for a while. And one, one point I was saying, huh, well, I know about Ethereum and I, I know about um, the technology there. And I think that there's probably some interesting businesses that be built on Ethereum. And so I said, okay, I'm going to explore this more seriously. Like, what would it look like to build a business on Ethereum? And then in doing that, started to learn about ERC-20s, which was the rage at the time, um, how, what an ICO was, how that all worked, why businesses were interested in those things. Um, and I started really going down the rabbit hole of not just knowing Ethereum at a super superficial level, but in a more intimate level, like how the virtual machine worked, what exactly people were using it for. And the conclusion I came to was that, uh, as I had already thought, there's a lot of great potential here, but, um, actually there was way more kind of hype and euphoria around the technology than there was actual substantive projects being built on it. But the projects that were being built on it were really interesting. And so I came to the conclusion that, that probably the most important contribution to be made actually isn't uh, a new application at that time. It was actually how to solve the underlying scalability challenges to make it so that the types of ideas people were throwing around would actually be feasible. Because practically speaking, half of the ideas that were being thrown around, if you had tried to make them as applications on Ethereum, the fees would be so high for end users that it would be just completely infeasible. Um, like when you're talking about, you know, hundreds of transactions per second for real people, you're talking about, you know, 
thousands to tens of thousands of dollars of fees for regular people for the types of ideas that were being, being thrown around. So I then got very interested in the idea of scaling. And at that time, Vitalik had written a paper, not a paper rather, but a kind of a wiki document called Ethereum Research. I think it was just Ethereum Research Challenges or something like that. And it was mm-hmm. basically just this open document saying, here are all the important things to work on in Ethereum. Uh, and here's like all the links to the GitHubs, to the ETH. Uh, uh, at that point, ETH research didn't exist, but just the various discussions that were being had on how to solve those problems. Um, there were YouTube links of talks that Patak was giving. There were podcasts. There was all this open content of just how to solve the problem. And that's that. That's the point where I uh, I got looped in uh, and, and I went sunk down into the rabbit hole more seriously. Um, so yeah, that was that was kind of like the 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 turning point where I kind of got really interested in Ethereum, really interested in scaling. Um, something else happened at that time, which is I, I had known, um, a few people in Toronto that were like loosely associated mm-hmm. with, um, scalability challenges, this company called Ledger Labs, uh, which had in it, um, this guy, Jeff Coleman, um, and another guy, Josh Stark and a handful of others that were working on trying to do all sorts of applications in Ethereum. Uh, they were, they were doing, um, actually, they were actually working on very early on. They had a, an NFT marketplace idea, uh, for CryptoPunks wow. in 2017. Uh, and there was wow. even like some interns that were working on that, uh, at that time. Uh, and then they were doing that in addition to early research on an idea called state channels and state channels was one of the ideas that was in that document that, uh, Vitalik had shared around. And so, um, when I, when I started looking into, into it, I said, okay, maybe I should meet these guys in Toronto. So I started spending a lot of my, um, a lot of, frankly, there's a lot of my like working time, uh, at Atomic kind of really diving into this challenge and driving up to Toronto meeting with Jeff Coleman and Josh Stark and, and others and started to kind of chew on this problem more seriously. And at one point I asked Vitalik, um, who came around to the office because uh, he knew Jeff Coleman and the others really, really well. What are what are the top three problems in Ethereum right now? If you could, if we could simplify it down to like, what are the three things that just absolutely have to happen? Uh, and at the time, he said one was sharding, uh, the other was proof of stake, and the third was state channels. And I, I kind of naively said, okay, well, Vitalik's pretty smart. He's working on sharding. Um, I think he can he can he's tackle that one. that one. Yeah, uh, he's pretty smart. And then the next one was proof of stake, and there was a whole bunch of work on that for years. Uh, there was Vlad Zamfir at the time that had been working on it. There was all the, there's just a huge number of people thinking about that problem, and I didn't really know anything about consensus algorithms or anything like that. So I'm like, this just doesn't seem like the right thing for me. Um, but state channels, there was like one person literally working on it um, uh, in in a really serious manner, which was Jeff Coleman. And that was the guy that was the um, one that I got to hang out with in Toronto. And so uh, I basically made this decision. I'm just going to like absorb his brain, basically. And so I, I sat down with him regularly for like eight hour whiteboard sessions. I remember these like very vividly. I would just literally sit and let him go uh, as long as he had to go uh, to explain every little detail of state channels, which at that time was mostly a vision in his head that Vitalik right. understood, but not many other people really deeply understood what he was saying. Um, right. Like there was one one copy of this information that he yeah. had developed on his own and you managed to get a download of it. Yeah, yeah. And so I basically felt like I went through like a time portal where I learned 
everything that was in his brain. And Jeff Coleman is someone that lives in the future, basically. So he's he was thinking like 10 years down the line, here's how this whole space is going to play out. And here's exactly how state channels is going to fit into it and exactly how broader scalability is going to play into it. And so I kind of teleported into the future through learning everything that he knew. Um, and then I just got very hooked. I'm like, okay, well, I can build this. This is a, this is a technology challenge. Uh, there's, there's an engineering element, uh, there's a research element. And if, you know, if I really sink my teeth into this, I could make a meaningful contribution to Ethereum, uh, which was what, uh, I decided was the most important thing to do in order to kind of realize the technology. So I ended up just kind of dropping everything else that I was doing and just diving really, really deep into, uh, into this kind of scalability challenge. Because it's interesting. I feel I, I remember the feeling I had when I first read the Ethereum white paper and it wasn't at the scale of, you know, one person showing me the future that was coming, but I felt like I, I had just discovered this secret about the world, right? Like to put it in the Peter Thiel uh, kind of framing. And it was just, it was irresistible at that point. It was like, I believe this is going to happen and I can't help but go yeah. work on it now. Yeah, yeah, that's exactly the feeling that I had. Um, and to speak, and to, to speak to the kind of secret comment, the other thing that was really um, exciting was that there were not very good words for the things we were talking about. Like state channels was like a made up term that um, you know Jeff brought into it, but no one else really understood. But that was just the top tip of the iceberg of all the various types of concepts that were being thrown around um, at, at that stage that they were just, you couldn't Google. There was no, there were these documents that were thrown out that Vitalik had written, but there wasn't like a large corpus of knowledge about what these things meant. And so at the time, this, you know, it was, it was the case that you kept learning new things every single day that no one else had really ever understood or had communicated or defined and there were so many open research problems and clear engineering challenges associated with them that just didn't have good language, literally, to the to, to that you could use to describe them. And so that was a very key indicator for me that okay, there's something important here. These these people, um, Vitalik and Jeff and and the others that I got to know over, the, over that time, clearly see something here, and there's a whole like mental model around it that no one else really sees, and is enormous potential clearly because of you know, everything else going on in the crypto industry leading up to the, the founding and creation of Ethereum, there was clear like, that, that these these things are important, but it was also just so unknown at that time. Uh, and, and now yeah. it's pretty wild. Now we have an industry. Now there's the layer two industry. There's There are things called right. layer twos. <laughs> and, and, you know, back then these were just like right. whiteboard drawings and stuff like that. It's almost like it's it's an analog to the scientific process of kind of feeling in the dark when you can't see and into a space that no prior human beings have explored. I mean, this was, uh, you know, the, the moment when Ethereum proof of stake went live, I actually felt weirdly emotional more than I thought Mm -hmm. I would have because this entire thing, it's not only a super ambitious engineering challenge. It's also literally like a thing that was discovered and created uh with no prior art i mean there's there's always some prior art but the idea of proof of stake or the idea of payment channels or state channels it's 
just being discovered as we feel into the dark and what's in front of us. And yeah, one of the things that's really interesting about that process and and it, it's almost as much an art as it is a science or an engineering discipline is this question of defining the language we use to describe these things. Because the language then informs the mental models that we think in and everyone else who comes in after us thinks in, and that informs the pathways that are taken. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I couldn't agree more with that. I think, I think if anything that, that, yeah, I think actually that's been one of the most important learnings that I've had over this whole journey is the degree to which it is important to name things properly and to link concepts with, with, with the right level of, um, uh, you know, decoupling of, uh, from other concepts um, surprisingly important. Um, I had definitely been thinking, um, I definitely had early on with the state channels work. I had a mentality of like, let me just kind of ship a thing that kind of works and not worry too much about how to explain it to others. And that, that, that proved to not be the right strategy, um, at the time, Hmm. because, uh, there was just the, 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 the amount of work was so wildly large that would actually the most important thing to, to have done at that stage was to communicate the, 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 the different parts of the system in a way that others could actually understand and then begin to undertake their own, um, work, uh, towards, towards building. Um, yeah, the, the, yeah, it's kind of just like how it's kind of like if you don't know how big something is, it's important to be able to go in with open, you know, uh, an open mind as to like, you know, maybe you can accomplish it, maybe you can achieve it. But as you are uncovering complexities, you really want to be very crystal clear about what is that, what is the type of complexity that uh, can be encapsulated such that you can like clearly set it as a module, communicate what that thing is to others so others can, you know, build something that's a part of it or interfaces with it, as opposed to you trying to hoard all of it within one monolith system. And that's kind of been, that's been a consistent theme, I think, within crypto over these years is you have, cons- like, you have all these launches of these monolithic systems that, you know, they promise the world, but that's their, they're a standalone system. Uh, and what, what has been proven to be the most successful, I think, so far in the history of the space has been not just building these monolith systems, but, but communicating concepts and enabling the open market of interested and smart people to come in and build a solution to that one particular subsystem. That's, that's almost been like the success story of Ethereum in, in some senses. It's, it's kind of just opened the door to all these concepts and it's created a language and a corpus of knowledge and a community around all these concepts. And now there are development libraries and companies even being built around small subsystems that early on might've been something that maybe someone would have just encapsulated within a small team at a larger organization. Yeah. Man, it's interesting how these different concepts, like coming to them at different points in time, almost like trigger th- different different things in my mind. Yeah. <laughs> and hearing you say that, I mean, in in from one point of view, I've heard that description. Like that's also how I think about things. It mm-hmm. describes like the sub- subtraction approach, like all those sorts of things. But in an interesting way, hearing you talk about going from thinking about um, building an implementation of counterfactual being the most important thing you could do to realizing that it was actually, you know, distilling the concepts and the pathways and communicating that to an ecosystem being the most important thing. 
there's like almost a parallel between that and the journey of a person going from doing everything themselves to like building a team and managing an organization mm -hmm. where like you realize it's not about me doing the work. It's about, and, and then, you know, good management is not telling people what to do. It's really kind of painting a clear vision of where we're going and aligning people on that and letting people kind of like make those decisions and solve all of those problems in their own zones of responsibility. And there's almost like a parallel, there's like a fractal version of this, where if you mm -hmm. take an ecosystem point of view, you know, Vitalik writing the roll-up centric, you know, roadmap of Ethereum is a version of doing that. Mm -hmm. Just like the people who end up taking, uh, taking the different pieces of that, of that puzzle or like working on the different pieces of it aren't, uh, you know, individual contributors within the, within the context of the company, they're individual companies within yeah. the context of an ecosystem. Yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. I strongly agree with that. Um, that's that's been something that's been remarkable about watching Vitalik as a leader. Because it again, coming from like the traditional startup world, um, you know, Vitalik is not at all your traditional, you know, company CEO or anything like that. Um, he's he's more like perhaps he's like a CTO, but he's he's more than just a CTO in the sense that he's not just he's not just saying here's how we do things. He's kind of he's kind of exposing the whole landscape of possibilities and telling the motivations behind those possibilities and expounding a vision of what's possible if we explore that landscape together. So he's kind of a, a visionary, but he's also kind of this like um, kind of technical leader. And we we we're kind of we're kind of lucky in that he does not try to ex uh, expound the, the power influence that he he could easily try to to have yeah. if he wants, but instead takes a stance of. Let me just kind of explain things, communicate things, and see what happens. Um, because it's exactly that that enables other leaders to step in and own domains. Um, like, like even just going back to my own story, the, the, the fact that I was able to say, like, what's the most important thing? And he said, oh, well, state channels. And I had the feeling that, oh, that's a thing I can do. Like, it's, <laughs> it's, not, it's not like he was saying to me, like, oh, well, there's state channels, and I have this person working on it, and this person's doing that, and... Um, you know, uh, it's, it's not for you kind of thing. He was just saying, well, state channel is super important. Um, you should talk to Jeff. And I'm like, all right, I just you know, talked to Jeff. And then I just had an opportunity to like make a, you know, make, make meaning in some sense in my own journey and what my own life and what I'm working on through that lens. That's like really powerful. Um, and it's clearly that's happened throughout the whole industry. Like I've met people that, you know, their whole careers has been taking on some part of the roadmap or some element of it and either like doing an academic contribution or an engineering contribution or, or even just an education contribution. And they feel like they're a part of it. Uh, that's a really amazing thing that you, that, uh, that has been achieved here. Yeah. Yeah. It's a really beautiful thing. So continuing this journey, um, again, from your own personal life point of view. So you start working on state channels with Jeff Coleman and Josh in Toronto, and you're figuring out the language of how to describe it, building this first implementation. And that's like more than five years ago now. Yeah. So we're, <laughs> we're, we're comparatively old men compared, yeah. compared to that point, though, though still young. And you know, and there's been so many twists and turns to this journey. 
And I'm curious from your own personal point of view and how you thought about the world and what you're working on, what the right thing to work on, how your personal approach to everything changed. What were some of the inflection points that you look back to or some of those moments, some of those conversations that changed how you think about things? I think um, I think that one thing that is true um, is that um, I developed a very strong intuition around this sort of community aspect of Ethereum uh, in a way that I didn't actually ex- expect to, to develop it. But it, it, it changed my point of view um, from, okay, this is a technology problem to this is a people problem uh, I, I, through the lens of um, what, what I also did at the time, the scalability work, which was ETH Global. Um, and I can kind of explain that a bit more deeply. But one, th- one thing I did when I was kind of going through the scalability journey in parallel is that I had also uh, organized this event um, in like the fall of... 2017, I think it was, around uh, Ethereum. And the reason I did that was from an earlier time in my life, uh, when I was in University of Waterloo, and just in that general area, I I had organized another hackathon called Hack the North, uh, which just got a bunch of people from around the world together in in Waterloo to do some kind of a project over the course of a weekend, um, which had been rather successful for, for college students to just try something new, learn something, build relationships, friendships. I had this in my mind of like, okay, hackathons are a good thing. They they build community and they're exciting and then you can innovate um, on technology with them and they're just a good thing. And I knew how to do them in my head because I had worked on that for, for years prior in, in Waterloo. Uh, and so when I entered into the Ethereum space, it kind of just like, honestly, I don't even remember any point in time where I was like, okay, my strategy is do a hackathon. It just was like, obviously a hackathon should happen and it just kind of like happened through just pure intuition um so we we ran this hackathon eth waterloo and when we ran the hackathon uh it created a kind of place and time where a lot of the at that point leading minds in ethereum all came together to just just hack like there was no there's no pretense it's just like it's going to be in waterloo there's going to be some really smart people there's going to be some really great companies we're going to have an application form. So you have to like, you know, you know, you have to know some basic Ethereum concepts. You have to be able to use MetaMask. You submit a transaction to apply, all that kind of stuff. So we just ended up with like, I think it was but like 400. a transaction to apply? Yeah, yeah. We, we added like, to, in order to filter the, the candidates, we had like a MetaMask uh, connect. And then, you know, it was either submit a transaction or send or sign a, sign a message, one of those two. Um, and so it, it just limited the pool because obviously a lot of people, you know, for better, you know, actually sadly at that time did not know how to use metamask despite the fact they were you know excited about this space so it filtered out the people that actually like knew what they were doing through a pretty simple filter um and so we just ended up with like some really smart judges uh you know vitalik was there um a bunch of people were, were there at this hackathon um and it just created this sense of community that originally like i didn't expect i didn't expect to be as important as it was originally i was just thinking a hackathon could be useful we might get some cool things come out of it but it actually ended up creating a really uh strong tight-knit kind of group of people that were uh then kind of staying in touch uh for you know months afterwards and it kicked off the creation of uh, a company ETH global which uh i'd gotten a small grant from the ethereum foundation to, to start and to to be able to hire a few other people uh, and and brought in one of my closest friends, Kartik, 
uh, Kartik Talwar to help to help run with me. And this thing was happening in parallel with all the scalability work. So what 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 happened with Global is originally again the idea was just like get some people together and let's just hack and like just kind of have fun. Maybe we maybe some cool things come out of it. And it actually turned into more of a thing that created community. And so one to your point, your original question on inflection points, one inflection point was as these global was kind of working, I realized that it, these hackathons weren't just important things to get cool things. They weren't just important events to get cool things built. They were important kind of markers in time for the progression of the space. Hmm. Because we'd have like an event in Singapore or in Cape Town or in Paris or in New York or in Denver. And we would bring together that same sort of cast of people, which was a mix of enthusiastic independent developers, enthusiastic, um, you know, thought leaders uh, that were expounding their latest thinking or research findings or whatever they wanted to do, um, companies that were trying to get a product into market at that time, um, and then just people that wanted to be a part of the show, either as a volunteer or a part of the organizing team or for some, for some educational reason. And it created a, a place for, like, it was like a microcosm of the broader Ethereum community regularly convening for a passion uh, for their passion of creating technology using Ethereum. And so that, the thing that I learned was this is more of a social problem than it is a technological problem. Uh, and that helped me really understand how much of Ethereum is, is you know, if you, if you look at it from like a very simplistic lens, like obviously there's ETH, the assets, and, you know, it is the, you know, it's providing the economic security for the chain. But there, there's like, there's the belief that this chain and that this asset and that this thing is going to be important. That is, it is a social belief. You know, it's the same thing. If we all stop believing in um, Ethereum, then maybe we maybe we no longer make any progress on the technology. Maybe we maybe we stop believing in the vision. Maybe that removes the you know point of the chain. And it's kind of similar with Bitcoin. And you know, then you can go into all sorts of arguments how it's even similar with the with you know the U.S. dollar, and that that's a whole other domain, but. But the point is like the belief in the vision and the belief that this thing matters and is going to be important to the future and that its vision and its values must be upheld was way more important than I had originally realized or originally thought. Mm. And so that kind of came about through seeing ETH Global not just be an event that produced cool output, but as a convene, a place to convene for people that are deep believers in this technology and in this, in this vision. Uh, that was right. one of the first major inflection points. Especially especially early on in the lifetime of the technology. Like by bringing the community together, you're almost reinforcing the forward momentum that they have, which is a necessary ingredient of making progress through all of those periods of not much external, you know, uh, reaffirmation there. Yep, yep. And, it, and it, al- it also created a time and place to kind of sync on ideas that could or should be more open or more shared or more collaborate collaborated on um and you know this this would happen in the form of talks where you'd literally have someone that's been chewing an idea for a while say like you know like the original plasma idea for example uh they would come and they'd give a talk at the event and actually joseph poon did this at the originally waterloo and it wasn't just like hey here's my cool thing let me talk about it it was, hey, this is a cool thing that we should be aware of. Let's convene about it and share our notes on it. And let's build on top of this concept together because it advances the plot of how we're building the technology. And so 
that ended up creating, it literally led to people joining teams together or working on projects together because it just became a place in time to share notes and decide because of one of the values of Ethereum to collaborate in the open. Uh, and that was really, really cool. Like, for example, many times when I was working on state channels, I'd use an ETH Global event to meet with other state channels researchers or engineers and just sit down and have like a, just have a long form discussion about how can we work together? Like, here's everything we've done. What have you guys done? Let's, let's compare notes and see where we should be working together more closely. And that was, and that was happening across every dimension of this whole space. Do you find people have to have a certain style of personal philosophy to fit into that world, to to want to openly share what they're working on and be be good partners in a in a in an open conversation like that? Like how do you how do you think about that in today's world, for instance, or generally? Yeah, I think that this is a key Ethereum value. Like you can kind of say it in different ways. Like one way is kind of this give to get idea. The more you kind of give into the whole, the more the whole will give back to you. Um, uh, like generally speaking, I think this is so core to Ethereum that it ends up being a dividing line between who is successful in Ethereum and who is not. Um, you know, we've we've seen a lot of companies and people come into the Ethereum community and try to claim too big of a slice of the pie or try to take ownership over too large of a domain without giving anything back and with trying to just take um, through all sorts of means, through, you know, saying that they invented something and trying to take too much credit or claiming, you know, a token over some major, you know, launching a token over some particular subsystem that should actually be maybe more of a public good or something like that. Um, and, and the community kind of begins to chew on it and, uh, usually spits it out. And, 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 and that's why the, the value system is so important is it's like the community decides what things it decides to keep versus spit out. Um, and, you know, this is, this is why, at least from my vantage point, as someone who has been so close to the kind of the heart of Ethereum and these kind of core values, it's really easy to decide when something is kind of worth working on or worth not working on is because you can kind of tell through the values of the founders or of the early team, are they doing this because they want to make the whole thing better? Are they trying truly to make Ethereum succeed and make the technology better? Or are they trying to use this as a, as a platform or a launching point to do something completely different, unrelated, that doesn't ultimately benefit uh, you know humanity uh, through the success of Ethereum? And, and that's why you know, the, the, the kind of the growth of like the kind of quote unquote alt L1 industry, uh, or just chains that are clearly not subscribed to, you know, benefiting from Ethereum, uh, they are literally taking the stance of, Hey, instead of contributing to this thing, which has massive momentum and growth in the world, we're going to do something completely separate. And it's not a choice that should be necessarily frowned upon or, or, you know, it's not even necessarily the wrong choice. It's just a choice that is the dividing line between who is successful in, inside of Ethereum and who is not. Right. Um, because within Ethereum, that value is so core to what, what gets traction. It's a function of the uh, leadership and the values that are kind of set by leadership. And, you know, le- leadership in Ethereum is kind of a unusual concept because, you know, the, the simple way of thinking of it is like, oh, it's Vitalik. But um, but there's actually many, many different leaders now in this space that have each reached a position of authority and notoriety that um, have achieved it over a long period of time. Um, but, w- but within Ethereum, it's the fact that these leaders are able to um, 
clearly kind of uphold that those those values and, and that vision for a long period of time. Like it's the case that when you go to an Ethereum event, you know, for for the majority of um, maybe not the majority, but for many uh, Ethereum events, it's still the case that you can tell there's a strong sense of conviction and hope and belief from the people running the event or the people that are giving talks at the event. Uh, you, if you, you know, some other industry and some other, um, you know, communities in this space, you, you can't quite tell that. Uh, it's much fine, but when you're in the Ethereum space and the Ethereum events, it's clear that, you know, people here have a lot of hope. They see this thing is going to work. They believe in, you know, deep down it's going to work and they're committed to making it work. And it's not just one person, but it's many people. And so, you know, the fact that people are so committed to the values and to this, this, this ethos and this like ultimately like sort of like quasi religion of Ethereum, um, that's what kind of keeps it going in good times and bad times, right? Like now, right now, you know, you probably consider right now a bear market, but you know, for me and like a lot of people, like it's, we've never been more like excited and convinced that this is the future. And so it's, you know, if you're a crypto person entering this industry in a lot of places right now, probably the events you go to are kind of downers and they're probably like, ah, is this going to work out? You know, but in the Ethereum space, it's like, wow, this is so incredible. It's all, it's just like, look how many cool innovations we made in the past, like three months alone. And so, you know, it's that, it's the fact that we're, we are so focused on the end goal and that people are so committed that that makes that work, I think. What are, so that, that's a pretty good distillation of an Ethereum value, which I, I don't think I'd actually heard put that way of the kind of give, give first to get later. What are, what are Ethereum's other values in your mind? Yeah, I think, I think one thing that's really important as an Ethereum value is like the willingness to be wrong. Um, and the willingness to be, you know, the willingness to make kind of radical intellectual, um, sacrifices. Um, and obviously we've, we've seen that. I mean, if, if, you know, we literally have talked about state channels and plasma in this call and neither of those two things are really like these in production, they're not nowhere near as uh, popular ideas as they were a few years ago. And I think that's because, um, we're basically willing to say, Hey, like, uh, a lot, there were a lot of phenomenal ideas within those two concepts that have lived on and that are very useful, but the core thing maybe is not as important as we originally thought. And, and maybe what, maybe, maybe either his time hasn't come or maybe, maybe the, maybe half of the ideas are really important. The other half, uh, you know, we, we're going to learn from for something else in the future. And this is true with all sorts of things in the Ethereum space. And one way you can slice that up is you can say, oh, you know, people here don't know what they're doing. They try all these things and they don't work. Whatever happened to like the WASM, E-WASM, e like all these things from the past you keep bringing up. And, but like, in a side of Ethereum, I don't think that we think of these things as failures. I think we think of these things as part of the journey of learning what the right thing to do is. Um, and the, the ironic thing is back to kind of like the alt L1 thing is usually what happens in this space is like these ideas that we're like toying with and that we were trying to push at the time. Uh, if you go the opt in route of opt in into Ethereum, then you become a part of this journey of, you know, intellectual progress and humility and evolution of the terms if you opt out like there's going to be descendants to your leaf of the tree yeah. rather than if you're a silo on your own end it would just be a dead end and yeah it won't necessarily continue exactly and that's ex we literally have exact we've seen exactly that like there are you know projects i won't name that have gone out and they have built companies with tokens built on exactly a concept that now we've realized is probably the wrong concept and so 
The tough part is if you kind of opted in to Ethereum, you're now, you know, you've, you've learned a lot. You've probably found a way to build something even better. And you're now building it with a community of people that have that shared knowledge of what we learned. Uh, if you opted out, you're kind of stuck now in a, in a, in a bit of a silo where you need to now make a very hard decision of how to either opt back in or what to do with your original conviction, because you realize that you've kind of opted out of something that has a lot of momentum. And you now need to kind of rebuild all the infrastructure that you have opted out of in your social structure and in your vision and in your, you know, technological edge that you sort of forked out of. And so, yeah, I think, I think, I think that it's a key part of, uh, of, of Ethereum to have that humility, uh, to be willing to say we were wrong, but also to be willing to say like, okay, well, we learned these things and we're, we're going to take that in stride and fold it into the next thing that we do. Um, yeah, I think that's very important. How, so one thing that's embedded in that question of, do I build in the collective and share my learnings and become a part of this intellectual lineage? There's this, uh, kind of decision that each person needs to make continuously, like on their own journey of how do I, um, it's a question of, you know, my, my local success versus like the more global success of this movement. Mm -hmm. Right. And, uh, and I think I find that this question is probably indirectly relevant in a number of other areas, mm -hmm. right? It's like just how, you know, building, building what you're doing as a public good or the types of business models that you even consider, right? Like, it's it's not a black or white decision you have to make. It's on a continuum. And you as an individual, uh, you know, person or company succeeding is also, you know, it's requisite for you being able to make moves at next stages of the game, right? Like you, you actually need to build a product, a protocol that's competitive with the market that ends up acquiring users um, and enables you to take those next steps. Um, so how, how, how do you think about these questions? Like, how do you square all of this mm -hmm. in your own mind? Yeah, no, it's, that's, it's, yeah, I guess like the kind of, how do you navigate businesses in this space and when to start a business, when to try to accrue value to something, when not to, how do you think about like tokens, when to have a token, what not to, I think there's no silver bullet. That's for sure. Um, I guess like the way that I've thought about it. Origin so I guess I'll say some things that I have done. So one thing that um, I've done is when building State Channel's project and when building Counterfactual and at the time when building um, the company that housed that work, which is called L4, we we deliberately did, ne did not raise any money from investors and we uh, deliberately did not encode any token into anything that we were doing because we were too unsure. Um, there was a lot of euphoria. Like I was definitely getting emails like all the time saying, Hey, like, here's like some crazy deal or when you're going to raise or how do we get a token? And, and like, I even had people at one point say, Hey, I'll work with you if you add a token to this project. Um, and like, it's kind of wild to see. Um, but, uh, it was clear to me. And I think this is also something that Jeff Coleman really did an amazing job of, you know, educating me on in the early days before I was aware of how this space really fully worked. Um, it was clear to me that that's not like, it was clear to me that it was not clear how it would all play out. Um, 
I knew that state channels mattered. I knew that technology mattered. I knew that the research going into it mattered, but I did not know what would this look like in like five years. And so if you think of it from a more simplistic view, to be able to say, I have a model that will for sure accrue value that'll produce a return for the holders of the equity or token or whatever thing that I'm introducing. And here's like an extreme confidence of, of that. Um, we just seemed, just seemed really premature. Um, and also it wasn't obvious to me that like the project uh, of counterfactual and of the state channels work we're doing was going to be a, a business even like it seemed more like mm-hmm. an open source project that if we navigate it the right way might be a business. Like there's kind of parallels to the the open at the time, literally actually I was thinking this in my mind, there were par- parallels, I guess kind of paradoxically now, but there were parallels to open AI, which is which was founded originally with the idea of like, look, this technology is important. We don't know how it's going to play out. And we want to explore the space and see is there a business? Is there not a business? If there were a business, what would the economics be even? And what would be the right structure of a, a cap table? And it just it just did not seem clear to me that that was something that we would want to do with the level of knowledge we had at the time about the technology and the level of confidence we had in the structure of the of any potential business. And so that was what's one thing that I did. Um, the second thing was with ETH Global, where ETH Global similarly did, just does not have any external investors and didn't have any investors. And there, though, there was kind of a business model, right? There was a way to uh, have some revenue by offering an extremely world-class event that sponsors would want to sponsor. And there was a model. And so instead of saying, okay, well, let's either tokenize this thing or let's try to like suck out all the value from all of these interested people, let's try to like take some amount of value from people that are willing to pay for a good product, which was the world-class event structure and the ability to kind of expound your knowledge into this community through either like talks that you might give or prizes you might distribute or so on, but let's not go crazy with it. Right. Um, so we, we kind of found a really good balancing line to offer a world-class product that would benefit the industry by getting people together without taking too much, which we, we definitely could have done by just getting, you know, like we could have made the events 10,000 people and like every company in the space that thinks they need a blockchain could have been a sponsor. And, but we said, okay, let's figure out what's, what's the type of product that is most aligned with the values that doesn't compromise on it. That can be a business so we can hire people and we can give them good jobs and we can pay them well and we can have a, a team and a structure that is healthy um, without you know going crazy with it. And I think that's kind of this balance we found. So that was another um, yeah. kind of uh, approach. It's 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 interesting. It it makes me think think of this tweet that Vitalik wrote a while back of the idea of fiduciary duty is kind of messed up, of like mm. you have to prioritize profits to shareholders above everything else. And that I think, you know, most good businesses in the world, you know, have a, a a moral vision that they're working towards. And the business model in the best cases is aligned with that. And so moving in that direction ends up making money, which allows you to move in that direction more sustainably and scalably. And the two sides kind of like feed on each other. But it's also interesting that I think you know, the difference between a C-Corp and a PBC is that a PBC explicitly can prioritize its mission above fiduciary duty to shareholders, right? Is that yep. right? Yep, yep, exactly. Um, 
Yeah, and that was something that um, was very interesting to me when I um, first learned about Optimism PBC, which was that it was founded with that that in mind. Um, and that's quite amazing of a structure to have um, you know venture capitalists in this space be willing to kind of like subscribe to and invest into, knowing that the priorities are not them; the priorities are a, a higher order vision. Yeah, um, it's quite it's quite amazing to see that. Yeah. So, so what does this world look like? Let's say optimism succeeds to its full ambition and we're five, 10 years down the line. What does the economic cycles that have formed around optimism as a project look like? So I guess, I guess, uh, I guess first of all, it'd be worth explaining a bit about, um, optimism and, and kind of how, how I got involved with optimism. So I guess to, yeah. to, to start with, around early January 2021, um, I had been working on um, state channels for a while. We had taken the project from just being you know myself and Jeff and a handful of early contributors to becoming more of a open source project with multiple companies involved. And we had gotten a company called Magmo. Uh, more closely involved, which was uh, acquired into Consensus and part of Consensus Mesh. We had done a bunch of joint projects with another company called Connext. Uh, we'd done some work with the Graph, uh, and actually at one point also we had done like this really long collaboration with a group that was called Plasma Group. That uh, and on that journey, it was like throughout building that, throughout creating these collaborations and this kind of alliances, I'd met a lot of people. Obviously, both through the events and through this specific scalability kind of journey. And a few of the people that I had met there were, were Jing, Ben, and Carl, who were the founders of Optimism. And they definitely subscribed to and believed in a lot of these same vis- uh, values that we've kind of talked about, about Ethereum, and had a similar mentality of like, how can we similarly build a project that is a public good for Ethereum, but how can we, how can we finance it without being completely reliant on grants, which can be maybe not as much money as you would need to build something as substantial as, as what is now optimism. Uh, and how can you do it without also succumbing too deeply to the pressures of, of, of the industry and of venture capitalists. And, and those folks in particular, the plasma group folks are the ones that, you know, became, you know, became optimism, Jing Ben and Carl. And so I had been following them for a while. And in January, like I was mentioning earlier, I had kind of realized they have, managed to find that model, which was the PPC model, uh, an investor base that's willing to give them capital, knowing full well that the way that they're going to use the capital is to build an open system that is going to prioritize the health of the system over all else. Um, and I hadn't seen from having worked on the State Channels projects, the plasma work that took place over those years, that clearly the types of things that were going to work for Layer 2 were the types of applications that looked more like what was on Ethereum today, like your Uniswaps and your Aves and your OpenSeas, stuff like that, which were open marketplace applications, which is exactly what the the you know the the idea of a rollup uh, ended up being primarily just uh, the ideal structure for. And so I decided, okay, in order to kind of complete this journey that I feel like I'm on and to uh, see through the original intention, you know, going back to the intellectual humility, uh, the original intention of scaling Ethereum, the best thing I can do is to put all of my energy towards the success of rollups. And so I literally um, DM'd uh, Jing 
and um, messaged uh, Ben and Carl and talked to them afterwards and just said, guys, it's clearly the most important thing that optimism succeeds for the future of Ethereum because it encodes the values, uh, encodes all this insights that we have worked on over these past several years uh, on building layer two systems. And it has the right kind of people involved from both the investor base and from the core team to be able to do this in like the right way, as opposed to in a way that's going to be extractive. And so I said, let's, let's, let's just do this. Like, tell me what to do. Um, and I literally, yeah. I literally. So you, you, you like, you literally like picked optimism as a project that you wanted to go and contribute to. Yeah. Cause it's, cause it just, so it pattern matched so much to everything that I had been, uh, uh, it, it just clearly encoded those values and, and it became clear to me that this is the way. And Jing Ben Carl also did not, they clearly did not, they're not vying for glory or, or for any motive, um, external to the success of our community. And so it, it pattern matched very well for me. And so I said, let's, let's do this. Um, and originally, I joined as uh, literally as an engineer. I just said, let's just what's what's the highest leverage thing? Ship the code. Okay, let's just like do that. And just uh, over the course of many months, we worked on building the thing out. We uh, eventually shipped um, a Uniswap uh, mainnet, which was a huge amount of work with the original version of the protocol. And then eventually, we realized how to make the protocol more general and more seamless. And we we called this EVM equivalents. And then we shipped a more public mainnet and it was just kind of building and building and building. And then, uh, later on, after we realized this thing has to be bigger than just one company, which, which we, already, we, we knew, from, we knew from early on, but once we realized kind of the time was right to do that, uh, when we made the transition from being just the one company to building, being a larger ecosystem and there was the creation of the optimism foundation, um, I, I took over as a CEO of labs, which was the original entity that created um, the the technology and created uh, the the main the product of Optimism mainnet. So that was kind of like the the story of kind of getting to Optimism. Uh, and the thing that led to that kind of creation of the foundation and of the of the labs was uh, the need to be able to have a uh, open ecosystem within which anyone can contribute uh, in a way that adheres to a lot of the same values of Ethereum values, frankly, which is this kind of give to get mentality and this uh, intellectual humility and, and also open source, uh, free and open source MIT licensed code that similarly also is available for anyone to interact with. So kind of going back also to the point around creating concepts for people, that's been a key key piece to our overall like technology architecture, where more recently we've, we've kind of released this thing called the OP stack, which um, in, in other words is the list of all the key concepts that we think are separable enough that anyone can work on uh, in a free open source way that should amount to uh, a, a better overall system if these things are separable components. Uh, and that's currently the yeah. kind of, that's the approach that we're taking to the technology design. Yeah. It's interesting. I, I was I was watching um, Kelvin's presentation from DevCon last night because I'd heard a lot mm -hmm. of good things about it at the time. And one of the things that was interesting about how he framed the whole thing was that this is one set of abstractions. It's one way to think about the design. 
And ultimately it is, it's like about design. It's, it's about the, the different pieces of the puzzle and the interfaces mm-hmm. they have with each other and the mental models we have. And it seemed like from his description that almost like forming those mental models and the evolution of that, those mental models was like the biggest part of the journey mm-hmm. of working on something for a few months and then realizing that you actually like this thing should look completely different than you had originally anticipated. Yep. Yep. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I mean, the original version of optimism, if you read, there's a, there's a blog post on the internet. I think it's on Paradigm's uh, writings page by Georgios Constantopoulos, which it describes a whole system. We've created an entire separate virtual machine called the OVM that was something that you needed to compile, compile Solidity down into. And then you would run this OVM code uh, as opposed to running EVM code. And then to prove the OVM code, you had a special prover that would like wrap OVM uh, and, com- and sort of like prove it against the EVM. And it was this very convoluted system. And years were spent on that. Like a long time was spent on that. And we made the decision after having like going to production with it that it's just not the right system. <laughs> like it was very hard to get projects to rewrite their EVM into OVM. It took a lot of work and it was no way that was going to scale. So we had to just completely dismantle it. And in the dismantling of it, we realized, okay, well, we didn't just destroy all of those years of work. We just realized the interface was wrong, but all the underlying ideas were right. And so how do we, how do we keep those ideas around and, uh, and, and, and build with those ideas in mind without, um, you know, starting from the, from the scratch, from scratch again. And that's what led to the, the most recent developments of optimism. Yeah, it's almost like a very deep refactor of the code, except that, yeah, the refactor is not, it has real external manifestations of how external like developers and whatnot will interface with it. Yep, yep, yeah, and that's, and and in particular, the things that we've realized, which is now kind of the, the stack of the LP stack, is that, you know, you know, right right now we kind of describe in this industry, we say there are optimistic rollups and we say that there are ZK rollups. And we kind of think of these things as like these these like pillars. Like there's a this big chunky thing called an optimistic rollup. Right. But that's only one that's only one like tiny part of the thing, which is like the false proof or the validity proof. Exactly. And you can swap those in for each other. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. So yeah, we have there's like there's there's at the highest level, there's how are you even governing any upgrades to the system? That's like the first thing, the governance layer. And then there's like, how are you containing the assets that are meant to be proven or managed by this thing, which is the bridging layer, um, or even just like you call it even, you could even just call it the the asset container layer. And then you have the question of like, well, how exactly are you doing the derivation of what inputs look like? So if someone's trying to deposit assets in, or if someone's hosting data somewhere, like how do you interpret that as as a, as a list, like what's, what is the interpretation of that data? So it's like this interpretation layer. And then there's also when you withdraw money or withdraw assets of any kind, how do you prove that the withdrawal is valid? And that's, that's now where you have the proving. And that could be a ZK proof. It could be a, it could be a fault proof. It could be, it could be a two of three fault proof system. Like there's a whole bunch of ways you can do this. And may, there might even be ways that we haven't thought of yet, right? Like you know, we have an idea with optimistic rollups. There are teams doing ZK AVM in different ways. There's risk five based approaches. Uh, there's EVM based approaches. There's like, you know, EVM, this gets slightly modified EVM approach. Like, I don't know what the best approach is. I know that there are lots of them and I know that it's probably going to be driven by demand of, of users ultimately. Um, but 
I don't know what it's going to be. So there's like, there's like this, this is proving layer. And then you have the sequencing layer where, you know, once you have a, a system that's running a production, like an optimism mainnet or an arbitrum one or anything like that, how do you, how do you have transactions sent by users uh, be sequenced? Like in what order? Like, and what are you optimizing for? Is, are you optimizing for speed of inclusion or for privacy or for maximization of extraction of MEV? Again, these are all different trade-offs and that's a, its own layer. And, 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 you know, there's a few more, there's the execution layer, there's the RPC layer, there's, there's actually quite a few, and there might even be more that we haven't even realized or decoupled yet. Um, but one, one thing that's really cool about this way of thinking is you realize, like, I guess this is maybe the counterintuitive point is you're not, you're not always at the frontier. Like sometimes what you realize is that by separating concerns, you've actually just drawn a box around something that someone else has been spending years working on, but they just didn't realize that this is the place that it should go. And so, for example, you know, one example of that is we've been working now on separating out that sequencing layer, like I described. And it turns out the sequencing layer is something that is almost perfectly pluggable for the latest kind of designs from Flashbots, which is the MEV maximization totally. or minimization, depending on how you want to think of it, um, protocol. And that's now really cool because what we can now do is say, hey, instead of building our thing over here and then admiring the Flashbots thing over there, we can say, hey, what if we actually collaborated and Flashbots thing can go in here and so you guys can benefit from all the best of the governance and the bridging and the execution and the proving and the so on and so forth. And then the users that are maybe we are able to acquire by going to market uh, can benefit from the best of the Flashbots system. So it's like a win-win situation. Yeah, it's it's super, super interesting. Um yeah, the flat because I mean the part of the explicit design goals of Suave, the the new Flashbots protocol, is to handle cross-domain MEV and whatnot too. So I know that they're they've been looking at beyond Ethereum L1 specifically. And one of the feelings I had like checking out the OP stack was the parallels that are there between this design and like the core Ethereum design of a consensus engine and an mm-hmm. execution engine. It's almost like the same sphere of ideas. Yes. That's, that's, again, it's like fractals building on top of each other. Yes. Yeah. And that's another, that's another really great part of having gone through this idea maze, right? Like it's, it, it, it's, I think it's not at all obvious that when you're building a completely new L2 system, that, as we are, that you would actually inherit ideas that were, that were kind of formed in the creation of the L1 system. Um, and originally and code, yeah, ideas and right? ideas like literally, and the, literally client, the same client with a one dip. Exactly. Yeah. And yeah, this, it, it is fractals all the way down. Like the one thing that's really cool is there's many things that are really cool, but one, just one more of them is that, um, because we are able to, uh, in the separation of concerns here, separate out what I called earlier, the interpretation layer, uh, and the execution layer we are able to actually realize that, oh, the interpretation layer, what, interpreting what data is on L1 and what the deposits are into a single list, that's, that's actually consensus. Like when you're, by interpretation of L1, in other words, what we're saying is like, how do you agree on what is the state, which is consensus, which means that, you know, the APIs between the consensus layer and the execution layer of Ethereum are identical for a rollup. You have an execution layer and then you have a a derivation layer, uh, but on on Ethereum you have an execution layer, and then you have a consensus layer. So one is doing this kind of proof of stake thing, the other is doing the interpretation of the L1. But the underlying right. thing is the same. 
Like basically it's getting it's uh, that the input for that derivation layer or consensus layer in the case of Ethereum is a a bunch of like blobs of data and what it's outputting is a uh, well-defined ordered set of things to parse and bi- build like the yes. state of the world from. Yeah, and it's and that's based on a principle that the source of truth for an L2 is is L1. Like the, the L2 is just an illusion of a thing that exists uh, on L1. Um, the, it just, it's just being, it's the illusion of a chain that is actually a series of systems that can let you update that chain and prove that chain as an application of Ethereum. But we call it an L2. So it's just kind of like weird framing. That's, That's actually really kind of what it is. Um, and just to, and just to complete the thought on the, on the execution thing in one more step there. In addition to having the consensus and the execution, one cool thing is that, again, this is not just technology, this is people. The execution layer is, uh, in Ethereum, a set of, there's a set of companies working on the execution layer. There's, and, and companies and teams, there's there's Geth, there's Aragon, uh, now there is Rust, you know, this is this new Rust, this new Rust execution client. And these teams know each other, they've been working together for a while, they're familiar with how to get things done. And those teams have code bases that are in production that have been audited, tested for a while. And those code bases that are things that we can slightly modify to take into account that extra little diff of doing dealing with the derivation to work as execution layers for optimism. So instead of us having to build the optimism execution layer, massive code base technology, we can inherit the social structure and team structure and community of Ethereum to kind of... Ex- to, to scale Ethereum by just slightly modifying their existing software and helping them learn and understand how to make it work for an L2, which is so much better than having to build a brand new separate siloed company or engineering team uh, that you now you have to maintain and, 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 ha- and expand and create a vision for and pay. It's way better to reuse the community. And so that's another yeah. way that we've benefited. Wow. It's a, it's a pretty trippy set of thoughts. It it almost makes me think of <laughs> it almost makes me think of uh you know with with L1 Ethereum how you know the core researchers had this mind blowing moment when they had been thinking about it as like as like ETH one and ETH two and ETH two was an entire client that needed to do everything mm-hmm. and then they realized that oh like the the states part is actually the same thing like we're gonna we're gonna reuse Geth and and the rest of these clients. Uh, for execution, which is the thing that they've honed, and we can very cleanly just focus on proof of stake consensus over here. Yeah. And they didn't know that ahead of time. They just kind of like lucked in. It was one of these mm. eureka moments that <laughs> someone must have had. And it's a yeah. similar thing here, right? Mm-hmm. Where I imagine you would have thought that, hey, we got to build the entire thing, and then you realize that this abstraction actually holds almost perfectly. Yep. Yep. Yeah. Exactly. And. And the, and again, you you real you make these realizations through having people that have gone through the idea maze. You've had people that have been, they, like literally the guy that made that realization on our team was literally the same guy that designed that API within the Ethereum research space because we brought him into this journey Who from was the Ethereum it? space. Proto, uh, yeah, Proto, Proto Lambda. So yeah, by having you know by by extending the community and having people on your team that are opt in. And, uh, and that believe in the Ethereum values, understand the Ethereum technology, you know, you can 
keep playing this game, which is, you know, learn, relearn, build, you know, scrap it if you have to, find the right abstraction, bring the community along with you. And like this, this overall system that we're kind of applying with an optimism, you can just keep doing it. Um, and it, it, like I said, it's the type of thing that has proven to work in building out Ethereum over these years. Yeah. And so, yeah, yeah, there's like a tying thread to everything we've been talking about, which is like, it's also interesting that it was Proto who had that idea, because I feel like there is an element of like a problem you've just lived and breathed and like has entered the deeper layers of your soul. Yeah. <laughs> that idea yeah. is going to come up in whatever new context you're working on. And so there's something about the people moving across, like between these leaves of the tree, like ending up on different aspects of these projects, these teams like having personal relationships with each other through these like events and like gatherings they're doing, like everything being open source and like reusable. It's actually pretty cool how it's all yeah. working out. Yeah, yeah, and it's incredibly meaningful too. And so when you're building a team, you know, the, having a team that knows each other really well, that's gone through these journeys, the ups and downs of it, you know, it, it makes it makes for a much stronger, more tight knit team because you're you're so familiar with this whole this whole way of being, uh, and you have trust in one another, and and you have a shared context and history. So, um, yeah, that that's 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 one of the things Ethereum has that like very few other spaces has is just such a large, resilient team of of true believers and and experts, and it's yeah. it's a real moat. You know, people people sometimes talk about Ethereum in the context of like. Will the EVM survive, or, or you know, is there is there some better technology? Could we increase the hardware requirements and just do it the whole thing better? Like, it it's not about that. It's about the people and the knowledge that has been built up over many many years and the processes and the true decentralization of this whole project. That's I think what makes it so valuable. Into the Bytecode is sponsored by Optimism. The Optimism Collective is building the open source modular software project known as the OP stack, which allows developers to run layer two blockchains while also addressing key governance and economic challenges in the wider ecosystem. Optimism is also leading decentralized grants experiments like retroactive public goods funding, which recently granted 10 million OP to projects across developer tooling, infrastructure, and education. More recently, they had a major milestone by adding Coinbase's blockchain base to also be governed by Optimism governance and also contribute a portion of their sequencer revenues back to the collective. I've known the Optimism team for many years and know that they're dedicated to both scaling Ethereum and extending its ability to build better economic structures. So if you're interested in learning more, whether you want to build something new or you want to apply for grant funding, then I encourage you to check out Optimism at optimism.io. So an adjacent uh, question I was curious to talk with you about is this is also an insanely uh, sensitive and ambitious technical undertaking, right? Like it's literally an L2 that millions of users are interacting with and going to interact with that's going to have billions of dollars settled onto it. And this is code that you're right, you and your team are writing. So, and, and this is also one of the very interesting things about the Ethereum proof of stake upgrade to me of it's, it really feels like a technical project of historic proportions 
in some ways. So I'm curious as someone who's like deep in the trenches building building optimism as an engineering project right now. What have been how how, do, how does that feel? And what are what have been some of the learnings where maybe five years ago when you started, you were this green novice mm-hmm. and now you're this hardened hardened veteran who's who knows how to like do this stuff? Yeah. That's a good question. I guess I guess what I've learned is um even like the smartest people can make um mistakes and even the smartest people can do everything right, but there's some flaw that no one ever thought of before. Um like we literally saw this, I think earlier earlier this week, there was a there's a hack of I think Euler Finance that was missed, like the vulnerability was missed by like six different audits or something like that. Um and so like it is quite scary. Um I would say what our approach is, is not to do things, not to say like, we have it, we have the perfect answer. Here's the answer. Like just boom, it's now perfect. I think our approach is uh, everything as much as we can do it in the open uh, as much as we can, like try things um, and let them fail in environments that are safe to fail. Um, Have it be all public and open and, and, do regular audits, do regular bug bounties, do as much as we can to kind of get the system, not just to be like, you know, sent out, uh, but, but to be understood. Um, right. That's why we spend a lot of time on like just sort of educational, um, journeys. Like we, we try to tell people, here's how it works. Here's what we learned. Here are the ideas. Here's the code. You can read all of it. It's MIT. You want to take it, run with it, do whatever you want with it. It's all right here. We we try very very hard to put it into the open, and I think it, I think that one thing relates again to what we've been kind of talking about is that the EVM is a system and Ethereum broadly is a system that is clearly Lindy like we you know it's it has it has survived a long time, but it's also something that's well understood. Like there are there are courses that teach you about all these things. There's academic there's an entire academic literature making references to the EVM doing formal verification, using like universal composability for all these frameworks about how the whole thing works. Like there's an entire corpus of knowledge and, um, and, and, and there's an entire industry of auditors. There's this, like the industry has been developed to such an extent to really understand how these systems work for Ethereum. And I think that the combination of all of those efforts is what kind of maximizes the likelihood that like every possible type of issue or vulnerability is identified. So I think that we are trying to take a similar approach. Um, we are able to go to market relatively quickly because we are able to kind of upgrade the system in an iterative way. As we, you know, as we start with only a small number of people managing upgrade keys and we keep kind of adding more and more measures and controls to it as we go along. Uh, which is a great feature of rollups is that we can go to market fast. But in the actual progressing, the progressive story of actually truly making this thing, you know, permissionless, decentralized, governed by a large body that has that ethos in it, uh, you know, we're taking our time and, and being very, very careful. Um, I think that early, early on, even with the state channels work, we never, we, 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 we never, we tried to not go to mainnet basically as often as we could. Uh, we tried to do a lot of experiments on test nets and we tried to be very, very careful about ever even like telling anybody that this thing is, um, mainnet ready whenever we could to avoid the potential version of the world where people take the code and run with it thinking it's secure. And I think that was something that was also like ingrained into me from Jeff Coleman, 
because uh, he also like he was a, he was he was in Bitcoin in like 2010. He's like super early. He saw all the hacks, all the issues, all the failures, all the you know every little secret of the uh, uh, the hidden hidden skeletons in the closet from that world and those days. And so I think he's also very 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 careful with that and taught me that early. So I think we tried to take a similar approach uh, with optimism. We recognize that there's an enormous responsibility, but we also take a pretty uh, measured approach to things. Yeah, and and the roll up, like the the rollout of a roll up, being able to be sequenced and you know increasing security and decentralization is is another interesting feature of this whole path, right? The fact that you can take a more measured, gradual approach there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think that's super important, and and I would also add one thing you know, again relating to the idea of how these concepts seem to continually be kind of communicated. One thing that's currently in the space is this kind of di- dichotomy of like, okay, well, things are either a multi-sig or they are permissionless. And uh, there's this idea that, oh, one day uh, roll-ups uh, or, any, or honestly, any system, this is kind of true, that any of the systems would just go from being uh, a multi-sig to one day just being, oh, it's perfectly permissionless and we're done. The thing is now done. Uh, it's just like, it's not, a re- it's, not a, it's not a good, it's not the right mental model to frame this thing. Because the actual mental model is is one of progressive decentralization and progressive permissionlessness, um, and there's multiple dimensions of that progressive uh, progressive kind of graph. Like there's both progressing in the uh, controls that uh, a you know a, any particular power can have. For example, limiting uh, limiting the types of things that can be upgraded to have a time delay as opposed to them being instant is one type of control that you can add. Without changing the decentralization nature, it's more of a it's more of a mechanism that you can introduce. But then separately, you can also change the way the decision making is done about those upgrades. Right? You could have it be a small group, it could be a larger group, it could be a vote that takes into account all sorts of factors. Um, so there's kind of the social decentralization. There's this technical risk mitigation framework, uh, and then there are also some subcomponents of the system which do go from being um, you know the decision making of a, a group to being the output of a of a program, uh, but it's it's a it's not a it's not a one and done. Uh, I, I expect that over the next few years, just generally for the whole category of L twos, there's going to be a large. They're probably going to be like events, maybe even conferences, tracks of just decentralization tracks of how do we do all these things right, um, and it's going to take into account the zkVM approaches, the optimistic rollup, the optimistic fault-proof pro, uh, program approaches. It's going to take into account social governance questions. Uh, it's going to be a it's going to be a journey, and so it's important that people are also aware of that journey so they can contribute to it. So I'm I'm also very curious about your own personal experience through all of this as as a person and and as the CEO of Optimism Labs. So um, I imagine. There's a, a lot of pressure and emotional kind of challenge going through some of these, like both the build the, the intensity of the pressure of building and delivering on a project of this scale and and then being contextualized within the craziness that is crypto and the world. Mm-hmm. Right? And you know, FTX blowing up or this last week or and and optimism being a kind of 
nascent ecosystem of its own, it feels the second order effects of all of these things, right? Like the broader sentiment of developers, like companies building on optimism, investors, like all, all of this stuff. So how, um, how, yeah, what, what are your own kind of like guiding principles for navigating all of this as an individual? Like, how do you, how do you find yourself doing that when it's a particularly crazy time? Yeah, it's a good question. Um, I guess I've been, I've been, I think I've been relatively fortunate to have been around, um, a lot of these types of problems in different siloed environments. And now it is just kind of a situation where they're all happening at once. Um, like I've been involved in startup creation and I've been in, involved with investing and with investors. And I've, I've been a participant in the crypto markets in the past that I'm, so I'm super well aware of the mindsets of, you know, trading and so on. I've, I've banked, I've banked, I've even used, um, you know, things uh, hold deposits that have completely gone under and I've seen that world. And so I'm familiar with having this. I've just, I've seen a lot of these things in isolation and now it's just kind of this interesting world where I'm in a position where they uh, are all kind of relevant to one singular project or focus. So I guess I'm lucky to have uh, at least some sense of perspective on it all. Um, I think the, I think where I land probably is based on a, a sense of principles that I have like learned over time from having dealt with each of these different like landscapes. Um, and there's different principles for different components here, like, you know, in, in, in principles for managing a team and leading a team and, and being a good team member. There's principles for the Ethereum space more broadly and ensuring that we never compromise on those principles. Um, there's principles for just generally uh, product development in the sense of like, you know, we could at any point in time with optimism and with OP labs, we could say, let's lean way more deeply into this type of demand we're seeing, right? Like for example, we could lean, we could lean way harder than we are in say NFT trading or on, um, DeFi and some of the use cases that are kind of growing there, but it's kind of like, what are the principles? Like what's the North star that we're trying to actually aim towards? And I think there it's just very important to like to to stay true to what you believe is right um and i think in the case of optimism it's a lot of what we've talked about in this conversation um the kind of give to get mentality the open source kind of ethos the idea of bringing the community along for the ride with you um i think that it's just like knowing not to deviate from those things as the right strategy is ultimately a decision that um i have to like stay very principled on and then Again, it's not just me, it's me in the context of OP Labs, but there's also the you know Optimism Foundation and there's a whole leadership group around us and there's the investors and so on. So it's like a it's a large group effort. But just generally speaking, uh, it's important, I think, to just like stay true to the principles. And even when there are narrative narratives that might be pressuring you to go in one direction or another, uh, staying true to what you believe is right and what was the founding reason why you worked on this thing and what's the founding reason that the people around you believed in this thing and not deviating. And so I think that's that's the key thing. So, you know, for example, when the FTX explosion happened, you know, it's, you know, one, one reaction to that would be like panic or fear because the industry is in jeopardy or something like that. But the other reaction is to look at it as like almost, you know, it's a bit, it's a bit, um, 
<laughs> it's not the best lens necessarily, but to look at it as like actually a motivating use case mm -hmm. for crypto, which is the whole point of what we're trying to build here is this system that's supposed to be permissionless, uh, transparent, auditable, um, you know, enabling complete uh, ownership over your own assets in a way that can't, that can literally make it be impossible for someone to be able to kind of do anything with those assets without your uh, consent uh, in a visible, transparent way. So, I would say, I would say, as long as as long as it's clear what the motivation is and why we're doing this stuff, then it's it's becomes a bit easier to always like lean on those motivations and those principles to uh, to not get too panicked. Do you have when you're talking about principles for building and managing a team or existing in the Ethereum ecosystem? Are these principles that you've written down? Like, are they are they legible at the level of like? This is a principle I believe in. Yeah, I've I've experimented over the years with having like written down principles and sticking to them. I think that more recently I've deviated from that being like the approach that I've taken to being to having them be more so things that I can like recollect uh, in my head. So there, I think there, I think it's there's no like there's no like ten commandments of like of Liam or anything like that um, anymore. There there was at one point. <laughs> But I think that um, I think it's I think I think I've kind of gone in the direction more of like letting them be a bit more fluid. Yeah, it's interesting. It's something I've been experimenting with more recently. I've reread Principles by Ray mm -hmm. Dalio, and he's like the guy. He's the principles guy, you know. And and there is something really valuable to writing them out clearly, mm -hmm. both in that you can kind of build on that body of work over time and reference it, you know, you can actually go back and read through like, what are my principles mm -hmm. for building a team? And then it's also a, a, it's knowledge that can be shared with other people. So mm -hmm. I find it transfers more nicely to group environments, mm -hmm. right? Of like working within the team or something like that. I think where I, I think where I'm currently operating from is a place of having values that are embedded within um, a kind of company culture, and having um, yeah. not necessarily principles, but by having sort of agreements or like free commitments uh, when dealing with a team. So, for instance, with our head of engineering, we have this kind of document that describes like this is what Liam expects from Matt, what Matt expects from Liam, what Liam expects from Liam, and what Matt expects from Matt. And we kind of have those things written down and encoded. Oh, interesting. And so there's there's like places where this this sort of encoding happens, but there's no like, I don't think I have any more a single seminal approach to life in a single place. I think that I've learned that I've as when I've when I've tried to do that and stick with it, it it, it can work. I think it can work very well when things are very much in your control and you are kind of guided in a very sort of singularly focused way. I think one thing that I've learned over the past couple of years has been that occasionally you need to be very willing and able to kind of mind meld with others that are on the same journey as you and find approaches that work for the group and not just necessarily for you, um, which has definitely been an interesting kind of journey to go on because I've definitely in the past been very, very like, like independently focused on this is my approach. And I'm going to use this approach to interface with others, as opposed to like, here's me and the people around me's collective approach and how we collectively can uh, achieve our goals, uh, which is much harder to 
codify sometimes because of different ways that people work. What are, if, if you were to say your own principles for managing and working within the context of the team and both for optimism, like within the culture of, the, of optimism, what are, what are the most important principles that you believe in? I think one that is like right at the top for me is to like never, never like doubt what is possible or never, never unnecessarily constrain your thinking. Um, something that we regularly do is kind of just ask ourselves like, what's, what's like the best possible way we could approach this problem? Or like if we, if we didn't know anything that we know right now, and we're just like from, from the ground up, just trying to approach this like thing in front of us what would we be doing? And being willing to say like crazy stuff, like, like, I don't know, scrap this whole thing and instead uh, build this thing. Or, um, or maybe you, what if we just like, like some, something insane, like what if we got this company to work with us and that company maybe is nothing that you would never even imagine in a million years they'd work with you. Um, just like trying to dream up, like if this thing is truly the most important thing in the world and, and we're putting everything into it, what would like the absolute best case scenario look like? Like, let's start from that. Let's start from there. And then let's think, okay, well, what do we got to do to what, like, what kind of things can we do? What are our options available to us? Like, can we actually like reach out to this person or can we, can we even get a prototype that would work that would demonstrate this? And, and like, as often as possible, revisiting that mindset, I find is, to inc is incredibly important because otherwise, I think that's when you kind of start to constrain your your thinking, um, and you and, and sometimes you do want to be able to constrain, but you don't want to constrain your your ambition. You want to constrain your scope after you've agreed on the ambition, um, and I think that's something that's like super super important. And I think that like especially in a startup environment, this is something that I try to tell people when they join generally in a, any in any startup type of environment is like everything around you is probably not the way it is because of some deep fundamental reason that is immutable. It's grand design. Yeah, it's, it's, it's probably there uh, because it was the right thing to do at the time, but there's probably a better way. Almost certainly there's a better way uh, for this piece of code, for this part of the company culture, for this approach to marketing, for this website, for this brand, for like literally everything is kind of on the table. And it would be a mistake to kind of approach your work and your job with like, okay, I'm going to do X and like this whole thing is untouchable. I'm not going to touch this. I'm going to avoid thinking about, I don't know, the way that we do partnerships. Like that's not my thing. I'm not involved that that's figured out. Like that would be a huge approach or a huge mistake in a, your approach. And so I encourage everyone that I, I work with to kind of have this kind of mindset. Like if you think the way that we're approaching this product is, is dumb or you think it doesn't make sense or you can't wrap your head around why we haven't done this much bigger, different thing, like, 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 talk about that, bring it up, think in those, think in terms of that uh, potential future, and then, you know, work backwards to what your proposal might be to fix it. Um, that's super important in a startup. Yeah, I love that. It's like de de decoupling from the, because doing anything is difficult. Like once you start doing anything, you get you face like yeah. all the friction and like the difficulties that it comes with and it puts you into this like incremental like do the next task like execute type mindset and it's super important to decouple from that and be like what is you know approach it with a fresh perspective yeah 
yeah, this is a, this is even, I think this is even in the principles book, um, is just like, you, it's, it's kind of hard because when you're starting a startup, usually you need to both be the person that is like dreaming up the future and dreaming up what is the absolute best case scenario. But you also need to be the person that like spends like six hours grinding on some manual labor to like, just get like whatever emails out or get whatever code shipped or whatever for the thing of that day. And, and if you're not that person, you have to be the person that hires that person and you need to convince that person and make sure you manage that person. And, and like, so you kind of need to have two brains um, and you need to be able to know which one you're using. And it is, it is remarkably hard. I, I've met people that are like amazing executors. Like they can get like so much done in a, in a single day, like remarkable. Um, but they can struggle to get zoom out and see the big picture. But then I've also met people that are like, all they think about is the future. Like they're talking 10 years in the future and like anything that anything you say to them that is like doubting it, they're like confused how you can doubt it. Cause it's so clear right. their vision of the future. And like, I just have met both. And it's, it's the matter of the fact is that if you're going to start something and build something hard, you kind of need to learn how to navigate from either yeah. spectrum. I'm, I'm still, you know, I've been doing similar to you, like for many years working on these early, very kind of undefined types of projects. And I'm still astounded by how difficult it is to build something new. Like it's an incredibly difficult thing to do to create yep. something where something didn't exist before that. Yeah, because it's you need to you need to it just requires every element of your of your being. Like you have to have a vision. You have to like be willing to drop the vision if it turns out actually like this other way that you could have approached it is actually more in line with the future. You need to have a whole you need to build a machine that can that can create things. You need to like make sure the machine stays alive. Uh, you have to hire people that believe in that vision that are willing also not just to believe in the vision that are also able to believe in you that are going to follow you and even contribute to that vision in the future. And then you need to like deal with the little horrible nuances and complexities of actually getting anything done. Like in software, it's not like you just kind of write some code and it's shipped. It's like you write code and it probably is wrong and then you ship it and then you probably have a problem shipping it and then you maintain it and it probably goes down and then probably it evolves and then there's technical debt and then you have to upgrade it later and then you have to hire someone to manage it and then make sure that they manage it the right <laughs> way. It, just, it goes on and on and, and on and, and on. And entropy is, is a fact of the universe. So whatever systems you build will also fall apart and degrade over time. So you need to kind of like continuously upkeep them. Yeah, but I don't know. But ultimately, it's like it's one of the most rewarding things if you can do it. Um, yeah, I, I, that, that's that's actually I think maybe one one more like the principles. I don't know if it's a principle as far as it's just like a thing that I reflect back on regularly is that doing this stuff is not like trying trying to build a company or a team or a project. Um, it's not always just about doing it. You know, it's it's you want to achieve the vision, but it's not, you don't just want to achieve the vision because the vision is, you know, once we get there, we will have succeeded and everything's great. But it's like the, the journey of getting there is in and of itself an important sense of hope and meaning and, and, and of probably a huge chunk of your life. And so you need to, even in this kind of meta way, as you're establishing all of these facts of the, where you're going, how you're going to get there, specifically who's on the journey with you to get there, as you're doing all of that, you need to also make sure that the whole approach you're taking is meaningful and important and 
and develop relationships and friendships and 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 a sense of a story of doing that whole thing. And that that actually ends up being the most important. Not maybe not the most important, but it ends up being it probably ends up being the most important thing for the people involved. It's probably not the most important thing for the rest of mm-hmm. history of, you know, humanity that benefits from whatever the thing you've accomplished, but it's the most important thing for the yeah. people involved, right? Like I, I guarantee you, like Jeff Bezos, you know, I'm sure he is incredibly satisfied with the fact that Amazon exists in the world and he, you know, the fact that it exists is great. Um, but you know, for him and his team and you know, the people that went along with him on that journey over like what, 25, 30 years or whatever it is, like that's their life. That's their, that's the thing that they did. That's their, those are their friends. For many of them, probably it's their relationships. It's their reputation. It's their sense of pride. Like it's a deep emotional, um, you know, it's, it's a deep, important part of their identity. And so you need to, as a leader of a thing like that, care deeply about not just your own relationship to the thing, but the relationship to the thing that you're creating for everyone around you, which again is why like these principles matter so much. I thought we would close with a fun segment. And it's the first time I'm, I'm playing around with something like this. But um, I thought I would name a person who uh, you've worked with in the past or somehow interacted with. And I'd love to hear how you would describe them and what is something you've learned through your relationship with them? And, and the first person was Jing. And maybe this one, because you actually at one point told me, I don't know if this is like one of the main things that comes up for you, but I remember when at maybe a year ago or something, you were telling me how, how just unique the, the way she had built a relationship with every single person on the team was and the, to the extent to which she cared about them and what the ways they were trying to each grow in. And that was something that, that had kind of like stood out to you. But I'm curious, Jing, as the first person. Yeah. So, yeah. So Jing is, the, uh, is one of the three original co-founders of Optimism um, and Optimism PBC, which is now OP Labs PBC. And now she's the executive director of the Optimism Foundation. She is someone really interesting uh, to have worked with because she is unlike someone, anyone else that I think I've ever worked with uh, in the way that she is so hyper-focused on the success of and story of the people um, that she hires and works with and uh, has around her. Um, to, uh, to, to a point that is substantially higher than I think anyone else I've ever worked with. Um, and the thing that I think is really admirable, uh, admirable about that is that, uh, she has enabled the stories of those people, um, that, you know, now is like a lot of the core team of optimism, uh, to shine, uh, through really deeply understanding why they are on this journey. Like, why did they get involved with Ethereum, or why did they get involved into this industry of Web3 and crypto? And where are they going? What are they hoping to achieve on their journey? It being like the above all else most important thing uh, for the construction of the team. And it's it sounds obvious to say out loud, like the team, you know, it matters as a manager to care about your people. But uh, I think that in your building a startup, it's oftentimes easy to take the position of we just need to get this thing done. Like, let's get the product out the door. Let's get this thing working. Let's just like move forward and like 
you know, I, I really have great relationships with my team and I care about my team, but, you know, ultimately we got to get this thing done. Uh, and that's, that's probably the average kind of way that you'd think about building an early stage team like this. But I think what Jing has done really, really excellently is um, really deeply care that each person not just gets the thing done, but that understands why they're getting it done and believes that getting it done is paramount to the success of the whole, whole project at every step of the way. And it's not a belief in a sense that is like, you know, how do I kind of convince them? It's more belief in the sense of you're here for a reason. You joined this company for a reason. Like, I want to understand exactly how you come to the conclusion that this is the thing to do. And I want to make sure that you're relating to what we're doing and believe in what we're doing based on that conviction. Because then if you're in the lens of that person, from like you're the, from the, like in a very deep sense, you're thinking, okay, I need to do this thing. I need to achieve this you know, milestone, or I need to build this next version of the thing, or I need to, you know, really do a good job on my own recruiting of the next person that I'm hiring. I need to do that because that's the most important thing for what I'm doing with my life and with my work. Um, and that is incredibly important, I think, as it turns out. And from what I've seen in creating a really high quality team culture. Um, and I think it might even be especially more important for something like optimism, where optimism is not just a technology product. It is more of a philosophy uh, and ideology that's expanding the Ethereum philosophy and ideology. It's it's super important for some, something like optimis, optimism because, you know, and ideally in a, in a handful of years from now, when we talk about optimism, we're not talking about like, oh, that core team and those people and uh, that product in the market. We're talking about optimism as this ecosystem with various leaders in various places that have various different stories and various different reasons for being there um, that make up the whole of this open, inclusive, and you know, innovative kind of culture and community. So I think that that's a, a superpower for someone in a role creating a, a decentralized community like this to have. Like individually connecting with each person at a very deep level. Yeah, and enabling them to write their story in a way that is, is successful for them. And and, and again, I relaying it back to Vitalik. It's one thing that he did. Uh, he actually also did it in, in, in kind of his own way, which was by being so open and enabling of others to innovate and create things and, you know, do whatever they want to do in order to kind of create their story within the Ethereum world. He enabled, you know, if you look at Ethereum right now, you, you don't think of Ethereum as like Vitalik and then everyone. You think of Ethereum as all sorts of characters and people that over years have developed their own reputations and brands and companies and, it's a it's a it's a community. It's not a it's not a company. And another person is Georgios. So who are they, and what have you learned through your relationship with them? Yeah, yeah. Georgios is an incredibly fun, and uh, interesting, and smart person. Um, Georgios and I both had like very similar ethos in this space, and we so we we both kind of pushed each other technically um and we pushed each other kind of just as as individuals approaching the space um uh to kind of like move faster to try new things to um find what's the hardest problem and solve it and we so we kind of became friends in a way that was both able to like help us like build the most important thing or think about the most important thing uh, as it related to like the future of l2 and just as we became friends, um, like improve our own 
through ourselves as it related to like just how we got work done. And like today, for example, we actually lived together in, um, uh, in San Francisco and, uh, occasionally we just kind of like, uh, push each other a bit to think, to think through like hard problems about how, you know, whether it be like about what should optimism do or how does paradigm relate to optimism or how might we be able to like go into like, you know, how might the ZK uh, technology kind of, uh, how might ZK as it, as it, as it changes and evolves, how might that relate to what we're doing and how can we like learn as much as we can, as fast as we can. So I don't know, we've kind of just built a relationship where we, uh, push each other to succeed, but are also just very close friends. And it's kind of like, it's kind of gone through this whole journey of layer two and of Ethereum. And it's kind of gotten us in this position now where like he's the paradigm and, and I'm at optimism and paradigm's one of the lead investors of optimism. And so the friendship has kind of turned into this interesting relationship where at the same time also we're both heavily <laughs> invested in each other's success, which is kind of cool. Mm-hmm. That is really cool. And the last person I had was Josh. So who are they and, and what, is, what, is, what are some ways that you've grown through your relationships or things that you've learned from him? Yeah, so Josh was one of the people that was at Ledger Labs early on when I was working on state channels and when I got, got in touch with that group in Toronto. And he was someone that was very clearly like smart, obviously, but also um, a really good executor. He was really, he was, he was the person kind of like pushing the machinery at that time of like the Ledger Labs a company and uh, a really uh, obvious like person to, I think, get things done. And so early on when we started L4, um, with uh, me and him and, and some others uh, starting L4, he was just like someone that I could clearly rely on as a, as a partner in thinking through how to get state channels like how do we operationalize this project of getting state channels? Like, how do we build uh, a team? How do we, how do we, how do we actually like recruit people and run this as a project that's, you know, going to make, make pro- progress week over week. And he was also someone that was a thought partner on just the future of the space. Um, and he's written so many great pieces at this point, um, throughout the years, just about where Ethereum is going, uh, philosophical pieces about the relationship that people will have to Ethereum and, um, and just like value in this kind of crypto world. Uh, as well as like the future of Web three, the future of Layer two, and so he's he's someone that like understands every element of the Ethereum vision, the Ethereum value systems, as well as the technology. But he's not himself like an engineer, um, so he's kind of in this very interesting position where he knows all the people, he knows the whole space, he knows where it's going, he has a philosophy that uh, is adhered to by many, and that is clearly well thought out, and and I think makes a lot of sense. That is driving him and others. Um, yet he's not the one kind of on the front lines building it. Uh, I think that's poised, that's kind of given him like the exact set of skills and kind of positioning in this space to be able to now do do what he's doing now, which is in this kind of general leadership role at the Ethereum Foundation, um, which is perfect because that's a position where he's basically expounding this vision, expanding the philosophy that underpins it in a way that is getting everyone around the Ethereum Foundation to kind of understand how it thinks where it's going and why in like a very well thought out crystallized way, but it's also because he's such an ex- excellent executor, putting him in a position where he can ensure the foundation itself is well run, which, you know, it, in various times in history, it, it wasn't frankly. And I think now with him actually in the foundation, there's a lot of serious improvements, just its own operational efficiency and, and the likelihood that it'll be, you know, it'll be able to achieve its own vision 
um, long-term. So yeah, he's someone that I consider like a business partner, extremely close friend, someone I can rely on, someone that I think is also just a phenomenal thinker. Um, and yeah, he's someone I'm very, like, very proud to call a friend. I'm actually going to his bachelor party in a couple of months, so I'm very excited for that. Mm-hmm. Well, it would be fun to ask each of these people about you. Maybe I'll get a chance to do that yeah. in the future. <laughs> Turn the tables. Yeah, that could be fun. All right, man. We've been talking for some time. Thank you. This has been great. Yeah, this is awesome, man. Thanks for inviting me. I'm like a big fan of everything you're doing. So this is, this is really meaningful to me. Hey, I'm going to make a small ask here. If you've been listening to these conversations and want to support what we're doing here, I would really, really appreciate if you could leave a rating and a review for the podcast wherever you're listening to it. This might seem like a small thing, but it will really help other people also discover the show. Thank you. I'm grateful to be able to do this and look forward to being here together again soon.